It's July 6, 2016, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're going to start the hour with a jam-packed tech calendar. Samantha Kimsey and Tim Spurrier join us to talk, us, talk to us about the 10-year anniversary of computational thinking and its move into the schools. Then Daniel Galera is here from the ESSA, and he's going to tell us about the upcoming Education Summit. This weekend also brings a Miyazaki Film Festival and the ninth annual Hawaii Geek Meet. And, of course, finally, after the break, we'll learn about the current struggles of our surrounding coral reefs. Joining us are Ruth Gates from the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology and Bob Richmond from the Kiwalo Marine Lab of the, of the University of, of Hawaii. What were some of the big takeaways of the recent international conference held here? And, of course, what are our corals telling us and what can we do about that? We also and always welcome your comments and suggestions as part of that conversation. You can give us a call or send us a tweet after the break. Now, there's something happening this weekend that is the ninth uh, anniversary of the Geek Meet. Yes, this is an event that I organize with a great deal of help from you, Mr. Lum. And it's basically an open grassroots sort of – it was sort of like the Maker Fair outdoors before there was an actual official Maker Fair. And it's like a group of potluck picnics where different groups, companies, clubs, organizations get together, show off their stuff, and – Kind of like bump into each other so that your peanut butter and their chocolate can get together by accident. And I, I like the idea that it's kind of like a geek picnic. Yeah, Because absolutely. really, basically what it is is we invite all the groups and clubs that we know of that are in sort of like this area, area of technology that we love and have them come show up and bring some of their cool little uh, gadgets and stuff like that. And then we just have a bunch of pizzas and food and <laughs> share some experience. It's very casual. It's very outdoors, which is something that I think all geeks need to do. I mean, spend more time outdoors is good. Um, so, yes, ham radio folks, the Pacific uh, 501st, that's the stormtroopers, the astronomy guys, good old Roy Gal. He's so busy, but I think he's going to be able to bring some folks down. Lots of drones, whether you want to get into them or you're a pilot yourself. I hear there's going to be some cool people from Hawaii Public Radio down there as well. I think it's going to be a very significant groundbreaking outreach event for this technical and scientific and creative community to welcome HPR into the fold. Wow, they're going to have their own little tent. That's right. So that is this Sunday at Kapiolani Park. It's uh, 9 to 3. It's all day, basically. We're across the street from the Waikiki Natatorium. So please join us if you can. Now, there's a Miyazaki Film Festival coming up at the uh, Hawaii Theater. Now, now everybody have uh, probably has already seen these Miyazaki films, but they, they better they, have. They, yeah, they are well worth seeing again. I mean, these are my favorite. Really? Yeah. And I mean, even movies that I love a great deal, most of them I found after they were in theaters. So, so to see them at the Hawaii Theater on the big screen with people who are passionate about it is definitely an experience you're not going to want to miss. So what films uh, are you looking well, forward to? Well, uh, obviously, Princess Mononoke is one of my favorite, mm-hmm. and I, I love watching that film. Spirited Away is another favorite of mine. Of course, my neighbor Totoro is uh, is another favorite. So the four, the four, and of course, Kiki's Delivery Service. Ah, is a, an excellent one. A, that's the fourth one. And that's going to be over the next... Uh, this weekend and That's I think weekend. next weekend, right? That's right. And in addition to the films of uh, Miyazaki, it's kind of timely because they're going to be also making it a tribute to Ghibli animator Makiko Futari, uh, a veteran studio animator that died in May. And they're also going to be doing, in addition to the films, there's an art and flea pop-up. So if you like those sort of special, you know, really unique boutique crafts, as well as dinner and food from Pig and the Lady. Fantastic yeah. organization. So, yes, the Miyazaki Film Festival, that is also this weekend. At uh, You can find more information at hawaiitheater.com. Yes, very worth uh, checking out. Now we want to welcome Daryl Galera from Hawaii's Every Student Succeeds Act 
team. And uh, he's here to talk about the energy, I mean, the <laughs> education summit, which probably requires a lot of energy on his part to pull off. Daryl, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Thank you. So, so Daryl, you know, I asked you this question just to prep you for the answers. How did you get involved with this <laughs> education summit? This is a big deal. Well, uh, Governor Ige, uh, through his vision and leadership, decided to form a task force, and uh, he selected 19 people mm-hmm. to be on this team. Uh, stakeholders representing all role groups and I got the short straw so uh, you win I, I <laughs> can you can you and can you tell us a little bit in like uh, you know what would be your your let's say elevator pitch on what exactly you know is this every student succeeds act the 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 law which we we um, use the the acronym ESSA uh, the ESSA law is a brand new law that just came out of Congress that uh, is a complete uh, reversal of what the country has been doing over the past 15 years. And so basically, it's now saying the best way to create public education system in the in our country is through the states and through the districts in your state, mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. from Washington, D.C. Right. And so the, the, I, I know there was a lot of uh, um, backlash from the uh, No Child Left Behind Act, Yes, right? yes. Yes. So this is something to kind of counter that. And, and how is it that, I mean, this is the first time that the state is having an, um, like an education summit, right? Yes. So the law, again, empowers the states to come up with a new plan, come up with a new education plan that you feel um, will best meet the needs for your students. And so that's what the governor is doing. That's what the summit is about. Mm-hmm. It's about getting everyone involved. And we got over a thousand people signed up. Uh, we we weren't sure anybody was going to come. A but, thousand. Uh, everyone's a thousand. Coming. So now, what makes up the the audience of the uh, Hawaii Education Summit? Uh, we take a quick look, and we have everyone from teachers, students, parents, principals. We have business leaders, community leaders, uh, higher education professors coming. We got um, you name it, and we have everybody. <laughs> Who's interested and everyone is is interested in education. So, 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 Daryl. So, I I signed up. <clears throat> I expect uh-huh. I fully expect to walk through the door, and without knowing one thing from another, how would I best utilize my time at the summit? I mean, how would you, uh, as an organizer, want to leverage somebody like a Bird or Orion that walks in the door and says, "Hi, I'm here." Well, we want you to do a few things. One, we want you to be able to hear the governor's vision for education. And then we want you to hear from, we have um, five top expert speakers from across the country coming to, to speak and to share some insights. So we want you to kind of hear what they're saying. And then we want you to uh, share your thoughts and your passion and your beliefs about what we need to do to have Hawaii have the best education system in the country. And this is more of a listening and learning uh, summit, and we actually want to hear and collect all of the input from everyone coming mm-hmm. to use. And to, the governor wants to create a blueprint. His, that's his, his plan. We're going to create a new, blu- a new blueprint for education in Hawaii. And he wants it to be done with all of the voices from mm-hmm, everyone mm-hmm. in Hawaii. So what constitutes the program? I mean, certainly Summit sounds like a meeting of the minds, and that's what you're <laughs> going to have trying to come up with this blueprint. But uh, certainly I would imagine there will be panel presentations. Will we have keynote speakers, or is it uh, more open than that? Yes, we, we have some keynote speakers. We have some excellent keynote speakers. And then we also have uh, breakout sessions where people can choose from 16 different um, 
sessions about education where they can, whether it's about parent uh, engagement or whether it's about student voice or about teaching and learning or leadership, we have a whole range of, of sessions that people can choose from. Mm-hmm. Now, if I come through the door and I, I definitely have a, a, uh, a passion and perhaps obsession with uh, STEM, is there some place that I can direct my energies? Yes. One of the big themes that the governor has been talking about and that you'll see at the, at the summit is this focus on innovation. The uh, governor believes that we have to create an education system that's going to support an innovation-driven economy in the future for Hawaii. And so STEM is all about innovation. Mm-hmm. And so I think you'll see that um, apparent in all of the discussions and all of the thinking about how we can have uh, all of our students become um, innovators and uh, so they can be successful in the future. Mm-hmm. Now, because this comes down from the National Act, is there? I would imagine some of the sessions are going to talk about how that gets adapted to Hawaii's educational ecosystem. I mean, Hawaii is unique in the sense that it has the statewide public education system, for example, as well as a charter school system. So um, I think untangling this act is probably going to be a significant part of the program as well. That's correct. So we have... Uh we have four uh, policy experts from Washington, D.C., who are coming to be able to answer questions on helping us make sense of the law. Uh, by the way, it's a huge law. It's 1,100 pages of a federal law. So when you talk about unwrapping, <laughs> there's a lot to unwrap. But we're not going to try to get people stuck in the weeds. Mm-hmm. We're going to get everybody focused on what their, what their ideas are. So in terms of uh, participating and coming up with this blueprint, how do you envision – uh, perhaps what would happen after the conference would you know so let's say you got a thousand people coming they all have their input and now there's this big expectation and now there's the implementation where can you know where can they sort of keep up with how this evolves we're taking and compiling all of the input and then we're going to be uh, forming some some major design ideas that will guide this blueprint and then we're we're going out into community town hall meetings mm-hmm. to get even more uh, intimate and focused discussions with the community. And we're going to all islands and mm. all communities to to really engage everyone. And so by the end, uh, you know, give us about uh, four or five months. We'll come up with some very clear specifics based on the voices of the people of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. So this is going to turn into pretty much kind of a full time, maybe maybe multiple jobs for you to <laughs> yes. actually. Have this conference take the take the information that you glean from this conference and then actually roll something out. Yes, yes, it's it's uh, not a one one stop thing. It's a uh, it's something that's going to be an organic process, as the governor says. That's going to continue to be um, you know uh, going to evolve and will continue develop. To grow. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, if you are very passionate about education, Hawaii, as an educator, as a parent, as a stakeholder in the system, uh, you'll probably want to check this out, the Hawaii Education Summit. So, where is it taking place? How much does it cost? And where can they find more information? It's at the Hawaii uh, Convention Center. It's on Saturday, July 9th. Mm. It begins at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's an early start. We start registration at 7 o'clock in the morning. But the price is right. It's free. I like that price. Free. And we in- encourage and invite everyone. We know we're going to get a big bump after this show. So thank you. At for least three support. more people. Yeah. yeah. For sure. <laughs> well, there's, you know, there's Samantha and Tim. And <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, so it's, uh, we want everyone to come. Uh, we think it's going to be a great event. It's probably going to be a historic event. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, thanks, Daryl, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And, of course, uh, we also now have uh, Samantha and Tim who are – well, Samantha is from Compute, um, Computational Thinkers. And, of course, Tim Spurrier is with 
uh, holy nativity schools. And this is something about the 10-year anniversary of something called computational thinking. And we want to welcome you both, Samantha and Tim, to Bite Marks Cafe. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So <clears throat> tell us a little bit about what this uh, 10-year mark is. I mean, where did we start thinking about computational thinking? Well, it all started back in 2009 when Jeanette Wing kind of uh, not necessarily coined the term because that was back by Senior Pepit who mentioned this word. But back then, you know, 2009 was uh, the dot-com boom. Everybody was putting stuff on the Internet. And everybody was learning how to write code. And then we, we had the boom and f- we're having all these people who are like, oh, computer science is not for me. I should probably pursue other careers. And so there we've got the industry, the computer science industry, who are getting a little bit worried. And they're thinking, well, we don't have enough developers and we've got all this stuff we need to do. So Jeanette Wing, on the other hand, was like, whoa, no, this is great. We finally realize now that we've got all these people who are seeing that we not we, we need computer scientists to do all kinds of things now. We need them to help in our, our managing our road systems, better trash management systems, and our astronomy, like all over the place. So she kind of put a twist on it. And so now, since that seminal speech that she gave in 2000, uh, 2006, um, she had it's kind of spawned this whole idea that everybody needs to learn how to write code and understand how to think like computer scientists do how computer scientists tackle problems and so ever since then you know it's been this slow progression of companies like code.org who jumped in on 2003 big huge organization that's pushing for all kids need to learn how to write code 2013 we've got the department of uh, education in england that started this whole computing at school initiative so even their kindergartners are starting to learn learn these, these computational thinking concepts. And so this it, it's been this slow but great progression ever since she had that speech. And now we've got just this year um, Barack Obama, who announced the Computer, computer uh-huh. Science for All initiative, where we had $120 million that he's putting into this. And so as we, we push these concepts here on the island, we still wonder, why is this not in school? Why are right. more people not bringing this into their, their core um, curriculum. And so, so that's yeah, I mean, where... Samantha, we had you on earlier to talk about computational thinking thinkers, which is a great program, but an extracurricular activity, uh, extracurricular program in many respects. And so what I think is probably well overdue after 10 years of this concept, finally growing, finally taking hold, is putting it into uh, a, a school curriculum, correct? That's right. And so Tim came to us at Computational Thinkers all doughy-eyed and excited. <laughs> and so we were just excited that somebody from a school was approaching us because we're always knocking on their doors like, hey, can we come to your school? Can we teach? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> so it was wonderful to have him come knocking on our doors to talk about this. So, so um, yeah, so Tim, I mean, tell us a little bit about uh, what the Holy Nativity is taking on in terms of incorporating computational thinking into curriculum. Well, when we, we first started talking about this, one of the things that we, we really wanted to do is make sure that it was a great match for our kids and our school. And we're a very small school mm-hmm. we, uh, by design. We don't want to be a big school. We like being small. We have about a nine-to-one ratio with our, our uh, teachers. We have two teachers in every single classroom. We have uh, technology in the classroom, but we really began to th- start thinking, what is the technology being used for? What's the purpose of it? And when we began to think about what are, what's our mission as a school is to develop ethical leaders for the future, ethical leaders for today, we began to say, you know, we need to be able to start doing it immediately. We need to start getting kids in kindergarten and above, even our younger kids, start thinking out problems instead of just answering questions. 
So when we look at technology, we're saying, well, how much of the technology is being used as a workbook? You know, how much of it is just being used to be able to, you know, come up with an answer and, and, and not actually come up with the answer, but just find the answer? And what we really saw with computational thinkers was here's a method, a process that they can go through so that kids can start learning and start being able to think and solve problems on their own. So how would you characterize what exactly is computational thinking? I mean, it's not teaching computer science to kids, right? It's, it's just another sort of way of, of approaching a problem. I think that that's that's part of it. You know, the problem that we have a lot of times right now is that we we, we have children that are not actually thinking any more than just the basic answer. And with computational thinkers and what we try to t- teach at our school, we're really trying to get them to think about how much more they can do. If they can solve a problem by designing something, then that's what we want them to do. And um, we use design thinking with with kindergartners and above. You know, we start using the terminology Mm. because there's a process that that you have to go through to solve a problem. And, you know, good teachers do that anyway. Mm -hmm. It's just that now we put a label on it and said it's, you know, design thinking and and using that with with our teachers. But it really, really is just something that good teachers do. And that's taking them the process of knowing the audience, taking the next step and having brainstorming and then going to, to make their prototypes and the rest. And you do that in reading, you're writing, you do it in everything that you do. So when we saw what Samantha was doing with computational thinking, we really said that here's a great marriage between you know, two organizations where, you know, we're working on it daily and what we see them doing is really coming in and enhancing our program. Mm-hmm. So, Tim, I mean, we're talking about the Education Summit, the future of education in Hawaii. You have um, small schools, small classrooms. Um, so that probably helps. But, you know, embracing this is not easy. It can be scary. And you can imagine why it might be a challenge for an established system, a larger system to embrace computa- computational thinking as part of their formal curriculum, what would you say uh, is something that you could say to an educator in a public school, for example, to say that, you know, that this is achievable and also probably something important that you need to do? Right. Well, you know, one of the things that we keep talking about is 21st century learning. And we talk about it as if it's a future event that's coming up and we're all going to be going to this 21st century learning. We're already there. You know, 16 years, right? We've already been there. Mm-hmm. So teachers need to have the guts to be able to, to, to move forward. Educators need to have the guts to be able to go forward and say, okay, what is it that, that our kids need to do in the future? What are the kids need to do right now? If they're going to be solving problems that we haven't even seen yet, I mean, we, we don't know what their jobs are going to be in the future because they don't exist. We're seeing that, um, you know, kids are going to be faced with things that we've never seen. And so we don't have the answers for them. Doing things where you can really use uh, technology to help out the situation after the kids have been able to think through the situations, th- that's really what we're looking at. And so for educators, all educators, what we're really saying, it's, it's not impossible to do it with 20, 30 kids in a classroom. Mm. We're just lucky that we have you know, two teachers and, and 18 kids, 20 kids in a class. Very good. So uh, how can we sort of uh, see how the impact of computational thinking is having on educational curriculum? Well, we hope you can follow us on computationalthinkers.com and also on Facebook's at uh, facebook.com slash computationalthinkers. Um, but also, if you want to kind of get your feet wet, you can come to our Bit Olympics on August 23rd and 24th at our center located at 4224 Wiley Avenue. And all of our children are going to be using um, a scrum methodology that's currently wow. used in industry to be able to solve all kinds of problems and practice their project management. But I'm sure Tim's school is going to be posting a lot of information, too. Yes, yeah, so it would be holynativity.org, 
and um, holyativityschool.org. And uh, we, we, of course, start school again August 8th mm. for our new kids. We love having people come out and see it because we think that the future is really personalizing education, and that's what we do best. Welcome. Sounds, Sounds good. great. Sounds good. Well, thanks, Samantha and Tim, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And, of course, uh, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Ruth Gates from the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology and Bob Richman from the Kiwalo Marine Lab of the University of Hawaii. We've had a historic international conference on coral reefs here in Honolulu. And why, we'll certainly find out, is what's happening to our corals, a canary in the coal mine for all of Earth. We'd, of course, love your thoughts or questions. As part of that conversation, you can give us a call at 941-3689, or you can reach us toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live in the studio monitoring Twitter. You can tweet us at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. Infographics have been around since way before the information age. Turns out they played a role in taming the Wild West. These data visualizations gave business people the confidence to say, all right, let's pour some money into developing the West. I'm Adrian Hill. So what exactly did those data visualizations show? Find out next time on Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. On July 16th in the Atherton studio, let us reintroduce you to the singer-songwriters of the 60s and 70s. Freshly reimagined arrangements of Joni Mitchell, Elton John, Antonio Carlos Jobim, and others will give you a new appreciation for these troubadours, whose music moved a generation. Reservations at 955-8821 during business hours or hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership, Wealth Management. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today are Ruth Gates and Bob Richmond. Ruth is a tenured researcher over at the Hawaii Institute for Marine Biology, and of course her interests lie in the Biological mechanisms that and traits that dict- dictate the en- environmental thresholds of marine organisms. That's my hobby, too. Bob <laughs> is the director of the Koala Marine Laboratory, and his research interests are in the area of marine conservation biology with a focus on coral reefs. And, of course, what steps are being taken to protect our coral reefs? And we'd love to hear your questions and comments. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877 877- Nine four one three six eight nine from the neighbor islands. You know, we wanted to start off with uh, with you, Bob, because you're the convener of the International Coral Reef Symposium, and this was a big event that happened just a couple of weeks ago. And you know, and you both were very well recognized there, and you both survived because you made it to this show. And <laughs> I want to get your feedback, Bob, on on what was accomplished. What were some of the highlights of the uh, Coral Reef Symposium? Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having us back here and certainly want to acknowledge Ruth as not only the director of the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology, so we have the two uh, marine lab directors here, but as the president of the Sanctioning Society, her role was instrumental mm. in pulling off the meeting, and uh, I think we did okay. We did great, though. <laughs> so um, it was exciting, and uh, we're very, very pleased with the way things went. We ended up with a little over 2,500 attendees uh, when we take into account a very good showing from the local community. We had three nights of open sessions mm. uh, that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and we had really wonderful turnout from the community and lots of uh, great interactions there. Um, from it, we actually had quite a lot of uh, outputs 
um, which we were very pleased about. Um, as I think I mentioned when I was here last time, one of the unique things that we did this time was to really focus in on doing a better job of bridging science to policy mm-hmm. and knowledge to action. And the reason why we say knowledge to action is not just science. Uh, we had lawyers there. We had the chief justice of the uh, Federated States of Micronesia Supreme Court. Uh, we had three presidents, the president of Palau, the president of the Federated States of Micronesia, uh, the president of the Marshall Islands. And so we really tried to make it broader than just scientists talking to one another, but looking at how uh, we could use our knowledge to work more effectively in the policy realm, which is an area which is really needs help right now, and also taking into account traditional ecological knowledge. It's very rich here in Hawaii, um, throughout the Pacific Islands and other parts of the world, and there's a deep respect for that as well, that we have fishers, tra- traditional practitioners. So it was really nice to see a much broader audience than usual, And as a result of it, we ended up with a very strong call to action from the three presidents, um, Mm. delighted with the fact that the scientific community really wants to be there in a supporting role. And they were very specific about the kinds of things that we could do to better partner to ensure the future of coral reefs and the people who depend on them so desperately. Mm-hmm. Now, Ruth, you know, thanks in part to Bert, I've, I've also come to appreciate you as, as, as a superstar of, of local marine biology. So I did want <laughs> to talk to you. We're going to change our show. You know, call, we're going to call, call it the Coral, coral Cafe. Cafe yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I, Good choice. I'll have to resist the urge to ask you about all of the autograph requests and the crowd surfing I heard about going on at the symposium. But clearly, it must have been exciting to be surrounded by 2,000 people passionate about the same things that you are. For you personally, um, what was the great takeaway of this meeting of minds focused on coral reefs? So I think the, the, the thing that I walked away with was this incredible feeling that, you know, people, when they put their minds to it, can do incredible science. And they can also problem solve in ways that no one person could do alone. So this collective effort, this collective desire to sort of take our science from books and the scientific community into a much broader audience, thinking about their science, how it translates in different ways to action. It was really amazing to be surrounded by that kind of energy and be a part of that kind of energy. It was fabulous. Now, um, you know, Ruth, I know that we want to definitely talk about some of the work that you're doing over at the uh, uh, Hawaii Institute for Marine Biology. But going through the conference, were there some other presenters that had some novel ideas on solutions to help perhaps uh, protect and save the coral? Yeah, I mean, I think that everybody's sort of thinking more more, more creatively about how their science can inform an, uh, an action. But I think the thing that was most stunning was uh, we had a huge turnout from what we call the restoration community. And these are people who are actively engaging in restoring reefs and developing new ways of growing corals and and thinking about how you would scale to actually make an impact with those kinds of approaches. Now, you know, to be honest, the scientific community, I think, has sort of shunned that set of actions Mm. as often they're driven by community members on the ground Mm -hmm. and sometimes they're not scientifically driven. And so for the first time, we sort of convened the science and the scientists with the people who are the practitioners doing things on the ground. And and you can see that now there's a desire for us all to actually talk in a more coherent way and work collaboratively to get to a perhaps a greater endpoint or impact in restoration than would be possible oh. if the restoration was not really directed with science oh. or used evidence to mm-hmm. actually demonstrate its efficacy. So I think that was an amazing um, 
sort of illustration of the shift in the kind of communities that are coming together. And Bob alluded to that, that many different types of players are coming to the conference and starting to engage in the conversation. And it's, 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 it's thrilling, quite frankly, to see what's happening. Well, you know, we're talking to Ruth Gates from the uh, Hawaii Institute for Marine Biology and Bob Richmond from the Kiwalo Marine Laboratory with the University of Hawaii, both with the University of Hawaii. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to give us a call. We're talking about coral reefs, and that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu and 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome Martin from Maui, the Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hi. Yeah, that's Martin from Maui. And I do have a couple suggestions on it, uh, but I see um, I'm... Um, water person, and I see uh, people, visitors coming from the mainland and putting sunscreen on and go right in the water. Mm-hmm. Same uh, kids standing under coral reef heads and waving, hey, Ma, I can stand. So I would suggest to have a, like, on the airplanes, uh, short uh, clip and what not to do. And maybe they should ban, like, plastic bags they did. And uh, there's a sunscreen safe for coral reefs. So, and they may be just supposed to sell it only that in in uh, Hawaiian Islands. I also have a um, question: if there's a monitoring of agri- agriculture runoffs, mm-hmm. okay. and um, and big thing, I have a car. Do do you have a car? Do you own a car? Uh, yes, I do. Okay, cool. So um, I changed my fluids on the car like you're supposed to do. Um, oil, they recycle. They don't recycle um, uh, transmission fluid, uh, antifreeze, and hydraulic fluid, which is the brake system. And uh, spend two hours on the phone. They say put it in the plastic bag, put it in the dumpster, and goes in the landfill, which will seek out through eventually. They say it's safe, but and then we will drink it and we'll go in the ocean. Right, right. Well, I so, th- And I couldn't believe they told me that. Sure. It's, it's, it's a crime. Uh, <laughs> there should be hazardous waste on Maui. I don't know how, how the neighbor, neighboring islands okay. are. Okay. Well, well, no, Bob, um, Martin, I mean, you bring up some great points and we will try to tackle uh, a couple of them. But I, I know the, the issue with um, the... The sunscreen and, you know, people putting on, you know, various things to protect them from the sun. I mean, Bob, you've got some pretty uh, interesting science behind that and what it might do and perhaps harm the corals. Maybe you can share your thoughts on this. Uh, Sure. And thanks, Martin. I think your points are very well taken that uh, broader awareness is very important across the community and also for the visitors that come here. And that's one of the reasons why uh, Ruth and I decided to host the symposium here Mm -hmm. was an opportunity to really raise awareness. We wanted this to have good impact on the island and throughout the state and also broadly throughout the Pacific Islands, which are our neighbors. Mm -hmm. Um, On the sunscreen issue in particular, there were two really interesting sessions at the symposium on what we call personal care products. Sunscreen being the one that hit the news the biggest with a chemical called oxybenzone. And there's very good data now to show that It may not kill corals directly, uh, but it causes them to fail in the area of reproduction. 
So a reef that has a lot of old corals, but they're not reproducing is a dead reef. It just doesn't know it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, corals will die for any number of reasons. And if they can't be replaced by new individuals uh, that can come in either through um, the formation of new larvae and seed that happens usually just once a year during a very limited period, um, or through even fragmentation, uh, then you have a reef that slowly goes into uh, loss and can never recover again. Um, there's actually been interest now as a result of the uh, sessions at the Coral Reef Symposium uh, locally in the Hawaii State Legislature. There's now discussion of passing a law uh, to ban the use of oxybenzone mm. sunscreens. So um, what, again, Ruth had also spoken about, we were thrilled to see at the symposium a lot of solution-oriented sessions. It's not just identifying problems. It's identifying solutions. Um, we're not saying that people shouldn't be using sunscreen. Um, you clearly need to and you should be. Uh, but there are all alternatives. Uh, right now, the zinc oxides are very effective. Um, they may be a little bit um, pasty or they may uh, <laughs> make you look a little bit ghostly, <laughs> but they stay on much better. Uh, they're much more environmentally uh, benign, meaning that they're not damaging to the coral reef. Um, they're actually better for your skin because oxybenzone is also a chemical that's been described as an endocrine disrupting compound. And that's not good for people, and especially mm. for young women in particular, it's an issue. And so once again, what we see is what's good for coral reefs is actually good for people. And being able to raise awareness, being able to put good science to work, that's why we're thrilled to see this effort. Now, um, we got a uh, request from Senator Schatz's office to be able to give them additional information because now they're thinking of doing the same thing at the national level. Mm-hmm. So this ability to be able to bridge science to policy, to open up this communication, to be able to be really candid with one another to try to figure out we have knowledge within the scientific community that has not necessarily reached the kind of people, the broader community of users. Um, everybody makes decisions every day. We're used to hearing about what we call a carbon footprint. How much gas do you use? How much electricity? Uh, what is your contribution to global climate change through your um, use of fuels, fossil fuels in particular? We also talked about a personal footprint. When you add into it the personal care products, the shampoos, the sunscreens, the chemicals we use to wash our cars and our sinks and everything else, they don't magically disappear. They end up in the coastal area and can wreak havoc. So the idea that people make choices on everything from the people they elect during uh, election years like this um, to the activities that they do. And for many reefs, we see it's death by a thousand cuts. It's this constant threat. Um, Climate change and bleaching, we've seen the most extensive and uh, long-lasting bleaching in recorded history. It hit Hawaii hard, Maui in particular. Uh, We had sites in um, Honokawai and Waikuli where we saw um, 80% of the reefs bleached there. Uh, I know Ruth has been doing extensive studies in Kaneohe Bay that got hit very hard. Not all the corals died. Some have recovered. But when water quality is compromised with a variety of these chemicals, the opportunity for recovery is reduced. So being able to work together as a community to make personal choices and then as a society to make regulatory changes is definitely a good way to go. Right. I mean, policy is certainly one approach. He mentioned, you know, making people watch videos on planes. There was a great series in Civil Beat about drownings and how that could be helpful if you could expose people visiting. But there's a lot of logistical challenges in trying to reach people that way. So, Ruth, how do you how do you advance this message? Well, actually, I'd just like to shout out to the Outrigger Resort, essentially. They've already advanced down this road. They only allow their hotel guests to use a particular type of sunscreen 
and it's a, mm. a coral safe sunscreen. And they already show videos in each of their rooms that are about coral conservation. So I'd like to really say to Martin, you know what, your idea of getting to Hawaiian Airlines and and, and putting a, a short video up on the Hawaiian Airlines, all Hawaiian Airlines flights is an excellent one. And I think it's, it's just dying to be done. So um, I agree with that com- completely. But I think you highlight, and Bob all, all is also highlighting, that, that communicating communicating the science that we already have in our pockets to a more general audience. You know, you asked if there was anything particular that is changing from as a result of the conference or the way the conference was done. It's this huge sort of community realization that actually we have a lot of science that informs action solutions and policy already. We just haven't spoken about it mm-hmm. to the right audiences and with a very clear message as to how it might be used. And so this is, again, highlighting what we already know. We know a lot about how pollution and climate change will impact reefs. But step number one is to stop people walking on them. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just common sense. You know, I often laugh and say you wouldn't walk on your cat. That's a living beast. A coral is a living organism. Do not walk right. on Right. I mean, that. if you have a garden, right, you don't want to walk on exactly. your vegetables, walk on your plants. Exactly. You wouldn't you know, jump up and down and say, hey, hey, look at me. You know, you would never do that. And so, so I so, think getting that point across so is So, Ruth, I mean, you know, you mentioned the outrigger. How did they know to put in a video, inform their guests that, you know, they should use this particular type of uh, uh, sunscreen? I mean, how, how would they know? I think, actually, it, it really reflects the, the, the passion of one person who's in a leadership position. You know, Bitsy Kelly, who has this, who is a very mm-hmm. senior mm-hmm. Uh, member of, of, of the Outrigger Resort um, business, is committed to ocean cons- conservation. Mm-hmm. She loves the water. And this is what you often find. People in places who have a passion similar to the passion that we have that drives us to do our science, if we could just reach out and link hands with all of those people, we could affect enormous change extremely quickly. So if you were a stakeholder, if you were in the visitor industry and you are responsible for bringing these visitors who love, who are coming to see these beautiful natural resources that their guests may sometimes damage inadvertently. That's right. I mean, what is the resource available to them um, apart from listening to this great radio show? I mean, where would they turn to say, hey, um, a video like that, how can we make something like that? Yeah, well, certainly I want to support everything that Ruth has said, too, about the importance of communicating um, across different groups of people. And we talk about cross-cultural communication. It's not just ethnic cultures or uh, island cultures. It's the culture of science versus the culture of people who are not trained in science. We have jargon. We have words. We have our own vocabulary. Science is a separate language. And one of the things that I came away from the symposium very thrilled with was the ability of scientists to be much better communicators. It was interesting that uh, during the course of the plenary talks, these are the ones where all 2,400 people showed up to a particular morning or afternoon session, and a couple of the staffers who have no scientific background would come up to me afterwards and say, my gosh, I understood everything because that scientist spoke in a way that I could clearly grasp what was going on. And I think there's been a much uh, greater emphasis now on scientists learning better communication skills. So when Ruth talks about people from the Outrigger Hotels, from the airlines, there's actually a number of initiatives ongoing to develop curricula for the schools. And that's a great way to go um, because, you know, you're never going to win an an argument with a five-year-old on a mission. So we found (laughs) the five- to eight-year-olds is a wonderful target. And that uh, a number of groups, including with the uh, Hawaii Coral Reef Initiative, there was uh, uh, curriculum materials that were put together. 
um, Polynesian Voyaging Society. Some of the other charter schools have been working with various members of the community, Sea Grant and others, to do a number of community outreach activities. And for those that would never come to a community meeting, uh, we did have very good turnout for the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday evening sessions um, that I was really thrilled to see. We had several hundred people uh, from the community come and visit. We had wonderful talks from Kapuna that were doing really great work in Maui and Molokai on local community-based initiatives that was really a showcase for the rest of the world. But the ability to come together with curriculum materials, uh, to be able to do video outreach, um, to get those school kids because they're going to come home and talk to their family members, their parents, their aunties, their uncles, and they can bring, you know, as I like to tease people, kids are the ultimate vector of every disease known to humankind. That is If you true. have a kid, they get sick, <laughs> they bring it home. They can also affect their family with an environmental ethic, an understanding of coral reefs, an understanding of issues. So if we take the time to be better communicators across broad audiences, we can reach the people who really need to have this information to be able to make the personal choices that matter. You know, that's, um, that's a great point. And, you know, I do, I do want to get into some of the specific work that both of your organizations do in the advance, advancing of, you know, protecting the coral reefs. Mm-hmm. But before we do that, we want to hold that thought. We want to go, uh, we, we will be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Ruth Gates and Bob Richmond to, to talk about how we are going about saving our coral reefs. Of course, we'd love to hear from you as well. The number is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. You're listening to By Mark's Cafe. Hi, this is Ray Cruz inviting you to join me tonight from 8 to 10 for Latin Beat. I'll be playing classic Afro-Cuban Latin jazz, Latin Big Band classics, and share the latest releases in Latin jazz. That's Latin Beat tonight from 8 to 10 here on HBR2, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. See you tonight. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, do boycotts work? So there are a variety of empirical papers that point out that the economic impact of boycotts is limited. The evidence against and for boycotts. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Thursday evening at 7, following With Good Reason. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery, Kaiser Permanente, and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I am Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Ruth Gates from the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology and Bob Richmond from the Koala Marine Lab, both from the University of Hawaii, about the plight of the coral reefs. And, of course, you can give us a call. That number is 941-3689 on Oahu and 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, of course, right before the break, we're, of course, getting a recap of the uh, coral symposium and some of the important thoughts that were coming out of there and Ruth, you had something that you wanted to share, and I think it's an important revelation. Mm-hmm. Things, are, things are more important live than they are dead. Yes, and in fact, they're, they're worth more economically alive than dead. And so, you know, this is a, a tack that many people are starting to take. We know if you look at the plight of the elephants mm-hmm. that are being poached for ivory, people have actually put a dollar figure 
on an elephant and the ivory that's taken from it at one point in its life versus the actual gains, economic gains of an elephant as it lives its whole life. And actually for coral reefs, this is a hugely important point because corals are living organisms that create structures that are the home for many other things. And those other things we eat and that living structure protects our land. So as a, a perpetual structure that requires replenishment, that should live and has a huge role that is economically important, um, there's no better example of this is a, an organism that is much more valuable alive than dead. Than on your, your mantle as a uh, snow globe or something. Exactly. Like that. And Bob has some amazing figures on, on this. Yeah. The economic value of coral reefs worldwide has been estimated at $9.9 trillion dollars. Um, that services 500 million people, specifically and directly. In the case of Hawaii, there was a great economic study done that showed uh, the value of coral reefs to Hawaii is $34 billion, uh, with about $360 million in annual revenue tied to the coral reef. So as Ruth has said so eloquently, this is the goose laying the golden egg. And once we put these reefs into decline, we lose the benefit of basically drawing the principal on a very rich bank account. We're destroying the principal, and what we can draw from this in a sustainable manner goes downhill as well. So uh, in the case of Palau, they just established 80% of their exclusive economic zone into full protection. Uh, their reefs are fully protected, and they generate uh, – one dive site alone uh, generates almost $4 million a year in dives. There's nothing else that they have that's legal that can generate that kind of revenue. Right. And the bottom line is Ruth is absolutely correct. Um, they actually did a, an estimate of the value of a shark alive within their archipelago is $2,000 compared to 40 to $50 in a bowl of shark fin soup. Mm -hmm. They made a decision years ago to make it a shark sanctuary in recognition that there's a difference between cost and value. The cost, for example, of a bottle of water is a dollar. If you're in an island or on a boat with nothing to drink, that bottle of water is the difference between life and death. We need to look at natural resources the, the same way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, actually, we're, we're having a great conversation with Bob Richmond from the uh, Kiwala Marine Laboratory and, of course, Ruth Gates, a director over at the Hawaii Institute for Marine Biology. You know, if you want to call and get your question in, give us a call, 941-3689 on Oahu and 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. I want to go to Lorraine from Makiki. Welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Hi, good afternoon and aloha. Aloha. Thank you for taking me through the reef that is our traffic here snarled up in Honolulu. <laughs> well, and, I hope you're, you know, uh, this we makes all your... know that the effects of traffic have um, a dire effect on our reef, but I was hoping I could ask a question and take the answer off air. Sure. I want to know um, what parents can do to help with the uh, rebranding of the reef. For example, reef shoes. Ugh, a nightmare. We're not supposed to walk on the reef. That's and a... it seems that, uh, you know, we have to rethink uh, how we present our environment to our children. That's a that's a that's a great question. point. That's a great point. So so Bob, okay. So I I go to the you know sports sporting show uh, stores. I want to buy something that I could, you know, uh, my my tabbies or whatever to walk in the water. A lot of them are called reef walkers. <laughs> yes, and uh, I'll start out and then kick it over to Ruth. But um, in some of the dive sites that I've been to, including Palau, they don't allow divers to wear gloves. Uh, specifically so they don't grab hold of the coral and don't climb on it. The same thing um, with walking on reefs that it's just – it makes no sense whatsoever. It's so destructive. Um, get in the water and get above the coral as quickly as possible. 
Uh, we know in scuba diving, too, that when people are well-trained, uh, their buoyancy and their weighting is so important that if they're not properly trained, they just crash into the reef as well. This is just common sense, and it's a no-brainer. These are very easy things to change through proper training. Um, for dive guides in Palau, they're required by law to have proper training. And in Australia, they have one that's actually really cool. Each company is given a single mooring buoy where they can take their tourists and visitors. If they destroy that site, that's it. They don't have any other place that they can go. So it's back to ownership and stewardship. That's a great question. Oh, I like that because if uh, you use if you if your customers damage the reef around your mooring buoy, then you're not going to get any more customers when you don't have a reef, Ruth. Well, I, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I think the other thing that, that we're touching on here, the ownership and stewardship piece, you know, I think scientists, we've done a very poor job at actually telling people that corals are living organisms. So c- people can be forgiven for thinking they're rocks because they look like rocks. So what we have to do is instantaneously correct that by being very vocal about what they are, how fragile they are, what they do, how they how they are connected to human health. Now, if we can connect the survival of coral to the survival of humans and get people to emotionally engage in the solutions themselves. So, Lorraine, I would say you're spot on. We as scientists have to change the way we do business and we as a public have to embrace a change in the way that we do business, particularly with respect to using the resource. We have to engage in the solution collaboratively. And so I would say, what do you think we should do? What 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 are your ideas and how can we help? How can we all engage in pushing this forward? And Bob made a great point that kids are a great vector for spreading exactly. both diseases and <laughs> information. And when you put a kid on a mission, they become an that's evangelist right. like the world has never seen. So Terrifying. yes, that's a great way <laughs> to get them going. Well, you know, and, then, and the other thing too, um, Ruth, is that, the, you know, when you look at the Native Hawaiian culture and look at where coral and its placement in, let's say, something like the Kumulipo, the, you know, the um, origin chant, I mean, it's like the foundation upon which everything else is built. Absolutely. So how can we convey that same sense of importance in the 21st century. That's right. I mean, reconnecting people to these origins, reconnecting. And I think in some respects, there's a little bit of tension because we are in a place that is 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 supported by the residents, but is heavily visited and in some respects uh, 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 used by visitors who don't have a, mm-hmm. a, a really uh, heartfelt attachment to the place. And so it's how do you balance that tension? And then how do we do? And we, we talked earlier about how do we educate the hospital? How can we work with the hospitality industry in all ways to bring this bar up about corals are living organisms? They are important to you, whether you come from Hawaii or Wisconsin mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or India. We want to go to our callers. We have a call waiting on the, on the line. Jim from the Big Island. Welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. Sure. Hello, everybody. Hi. Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment. Um, you know, it's really <clears throat> sad the way this state has managed its inshore waters, you know, ever since, uh, well, really, I mean, way before it was a state, once the Kapu system was broken, it's just became Caucasian and Asian style where you just take everything before the next guy can get there. And that's become norm. And uh, the idea of conservation is it's coming on now, finally. But uh, the other thing that kind of bugs me, we're talking about a lot of Benini things like walking on the reef and sunscreen and stuff. 
but the real problems I see is the non-point runoff and the and then the the coastline development that's allowed to just go on and on and on over here on the Big Island, like Kukio over there, Kukio North. You can there's a defined change because I dive I free dive that area and um, from where the development starts and where there isn't development, there's just lava. You can see the reef gets all scuzzy mm-hmm. from all that nitrogen going right through that porous lava from the golf courses and the landscaping and such. And uh, I always try to imagine a Lee Drive in Kona if they had a setback over there, say, you know, 400 feet or something. That would be one of the jewels in the Pacific, that coastline there, you know. Well, thanks. And, thanks. You know, yeah, I think it's up to our legislators and stuff. we, we got to just... I know that coastline uh, properties are worth billions and billions of dollars, but you know, it's just it's just there's no change on our appetite. We just uh, there's money involved. It's the reef be damned. Absolutely, yeah. our natural resources are priceless, regardless of the they, value. And then they want to come after the little guys all the time and say, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that, which is good in a way. Uh, conservation of the fish and stuff needs to start happening right away, but. But, you know, if they don't have a clean home to live in, then they're not going to come back either. Right. Well, thank you very, very much for your call. Now, Bob, we talked a little bit about policy, talking with uh, uh, Representative Schatz, for example, Senator Schatz. So um, policy clearly plays a role with something as significant as property development, land development. Yeah, and the the caller was right on target that uh, one of the biggest problems we see in Hawaii right now is what we call land-based sources of pollution. That's the runoff and sedimentation that he spoke about that's just trashing our coastal waters. Um, I've been working throughout the Pacific and Caribbean for 42 years on coral reefs, and I've never seen a more efficient system in the world for killing coastal reefs compared to what we have in Hawaii. And these are those concrete runways that go from the mountain to the sea. And this disconnect, which he's absolutely correct, is a very Western concept of the difference between activities on land and the activities in the ocean. And people know in Hawaii the uh, concept of ahuwa'a mm-hmm. is a recognition of that land-sea connection, and that's the way in which things were managed in an integrative manner. Whatever you do on land today is going to end up in the coastal zone tomorrow. And these concrete runways can move tons of sediment, uh, chemicals, agrochemicals, pesticides, uh, gasoline, hydrocarbons, you name it, comes out. And in one rainfall event we had in 2008 in Monolua Bay where we have one of our major uh, watershed sites right off of the Hawaii Marina, we had 20 tons of sediment come out of the Kulio'o watershed and hit the middle reef uh, in four to six hours. No reef in the world can withstand that. So part of it is to get policies that take into account. Right now, the rule is that a developer clearing land has to put up a sediment screen. It doesn't say the sediment screen has to be effective. It doesn't (laughs) say it has to remove sediment from getting into the ocean. It simply says put up the sediment screen, which is typically Mm -hmm. non-functional. A chain link fence. (laughs) Exactly. It really is. I mean, it's just something you put up for show to make you feel better. Yeah, keep the trees out, right, from from going into the bay. But, you know, again, it's multiple stressors. And that's a lot of the research that our lab at the Kewala Marine Laboratory is involved in. We have wonderful people involved in uh, marine microbiology looking at the sensitive cues that animals use to cue into where they should settle, when they should reproduce. Uh, Our lab does what we affectionately call Dr. Doodle meets CSI. 
We actually have techniques that we've taken from human medicine. Uh, we don't wait until somebody dies to say you have a problem. If you waited that long, it's too late. So what we do is the same kinds of tests that we've used for people, cholesterol, urinalysis, blood pressure, that can tell if a, an individual is stressed or in a, a reduced health state before the individual dies. And we've been able to take these same techniques into the ocean to sample corals. And this is where the Dr. Doolittle comes in. We can actually listen to them. They can tell us if they're being poisoned, um, if they're being overrun by algae and suffering from oxygen deprivation at nighttime, if they're being buried by sediment. So as Ruth has talked about, you know, we have great science now that can really answer fundamental questions about cause and effect. Now we have to be able to translate that science into policy to address those causes of the stress so they can reduce it before we get to the point where the corals and the reef die and disappear. Mm -hmm. And uh, before we run out of time, Ruth, I want to hear a little bit about your work specifically Absolutely. at uh, at, <clears throat> at your facility. So, you know, I have this, um, this perspective that we should be doing everything we can. And Bob is talking about mitigating and Jim was talking about, look, let's mitigate the, de the, the developers. But I'm taking a different tack, which is, look, we know that all of our activities collectively are are essentially outpacing the ability of our reefs to survive. And so how do we move forward from here? And our group is taking the approach that, well, there are some individuals within, within any population of corals that seem to be surviving conditions that are killing the, the others. And what if we could start to breed those corals? And what if we could start to understand why they're doing so well, well enough to be able to start to develop coral stocks that can be used to restore reefs that are already provisioned to, to, to face our future. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of our work is in that particular, could we do probiotics for corals, for mm -hmm. example? Are there ways to really assist corals to survive while we take care of these bigger issues? But let me be absolutely clear, unless we take care of these bigger issues of climate change, that is fossil fuel burning, and this huge influx of land-based pollutants, there's not a coral that will be able to survive it on the long term. That absolutely has to be done. My position is we need to sustain corals and reefs while we get to that point of mitigating the stressors that are causing their decline. But mitigation is absolutely necessary. Absolutely. So do you, do you see your work, uh, again, you know, in the short time that we have, mm. you do the work at the, at the uh, Marine Institute for, uh, I mean, Hawaii Marine um, Institute. Institute for Marine Biology, yeah. yeah. You do that work. I mean, it, it, yes. it does serve a purpose, but then there's some larger efforts yes. that need to take place. Are you guys also involved with trying absolutely. to change policy as well? Changing policy, changing behaviors, both at the individual, at the school, at the university, at the every level. And this is the thing. No one size fits all. We need to be doing everything we can. And luckily, there are people engaged in every layer of activity and advancing as a collective to accomplish the outcome, and that is to protect reefs. Very good. Very good. So we want to thank you, Ruth Gates. Of course, uh, she leads up the Hawaii Institute for Marine Biology. And of course, Bob Richmond is the director over at the Kiwalo Marine Lab of the University of Hawaii. And we want to thank you both for joining us today. Thanks thank so much. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. You can join us next week when we'll talk about IT modernization and transformation in state government. And of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback 
at bitemarks.org. And of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And of course, uh, we leave you with our song pick of the week here. This is dedicated to the Juno spacecraft as it orbits <laughs> Jupiter. Here's Amber Arcade and a song called Turning Light. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.